We're going to open our Bibles now. Uh, our text for this morning is Nahum chapter 2. Um, we're halfway through our series in Nahum, which is less impressive when it's only a three-chapter book. Uh, but we're going to consider all of chapter 2 this week uh, and all of chapter 3 next week. But I'm going to invite Ben up and he's going to read for us Nahum chapter 2. Nahum 2. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendour of Jacob like the splendour of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of his soldiers are red, the warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs, and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, keep your Bibles open. Uh, it's uh, not a long chapter, but there's some uh, unusual and interesting things in there. Um, and as we work through it, it will be to your aid if you've got it nearby uh, to be able to refer back. Before we open this passage up, uh, let me pray that God will help us as we do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, want to ask for your help as we work our way through this chapter. Father, there are things in here which are difficult. Uh, There are things in here which we find hard to understand uh, and that seems strange to us. Uh, And yet we know that these are your words uh, and words that you have preserved for us uh, and for our help, that we would know you uh, and we would come to love you better. 
And so we pray that we would see you clearly in it, in these words. Uh, We pray that you would open them before us, that your spirit would aid us as we come to understand it. Help us not just to understand them, may they be not just knowledge for us, but instead may you help us, uh, may you shape our lives by these verses. Uh, May you uh, help us and equip us to live as your people in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Even though it's a few years old now, well, more than a few years old, uh, I I still think the movie The Castle uh, is a classic uh, Australian movie. It is perhaps the classic Australian movie. Um, Even though the cars, even though the clothes and the fashions and all those sorts of things are very outdated, the picture of uh, culture that it gives, that that it paints, I, I think it's almost identical today. You still see it so much. That classic... Uh, little guy versus the big guy, that, that suspicion and feeling of powerlessness against the big corporation doing what it wants, that's just part of who we are, isn't it? Uh, as Australians, we're just suspicious uh, of big, powerful groups or, or people. We don't like them. We don't like being pushed around. We don't like feeling powerless. Uh, we don't like being spied on or manipulated. Uh, maybe it's you know, part of our lingering convict heritage. We don't like the, the people in control. We, we just struggle with it. Uh, whether it's supermarkets or banks or tech companies, whether it's Telstra, uh, we, we want to push against their influence, don't we? We want to have control. We want to have freedom. Uh, we want to have choice. We don't want to be manipulated. Uh, it's the vibe. <laughs> it's Marbo. It's just who we are. Well, if we don't like it, uh, try to put yourself in the place of a Judean, uh, a citizen of Judah, in Nahum's time. Uh, If you lived then, if you lived there, your country, uh, your cities, yourself, are being oppressed by the ultimate big power, the ultimate uh, bully, the nation of Assyria, represented by the city of Nineveh. They have taken your lands, uh, Judah used to be a nation of some influence. Now it's essentially a, 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 just a large city-state. Uh, they've changed your way of life. Your taxes go to Assyria. Their products swamp your market. Their way of life, their language is promoted and all around you. They've changed your religion. Uh, your temples, your ways in which you used to worship, they're, they're kind of shunned and denied and suppressed and instead your cities are full of pagan Assyrian gods and their temples and their prophets and their shrines. Uh, Your leaders and your king, they all toe the party line, partly because it lines their own pockets, partly because to speak out is not only dangerous but possibly would lead to death. It's a hard time to be a Judean. But now... This guy called Nahum, this prophet of God, has passed around this little book, this little tract uh, that he's written and it's got the word of God in it and that word of God says not only is God coming but an end to these bad times is coming. The end of Nineveh, the end of Assyria is ahead. There is good news here if you're a Judean. But you're not, are you? (laughs) I mean, hang on a sec. What does this have to do for you? This is something that happened 2,600 years ago. It's about two nations uh, that don't even exist anymore. Why on earth does it matter for us? Why should we care, honestly? 
Well, we should care because, well, one, this is still God's word for us. God's preserved this for us. But two, because in this there are important things about God for us. There is a promise that God makes and there is an insight into how God works. And even though the circumstances and situation for us is different, those two things are still the same for us today and for our relationship with God. And we're going to open that up as we we pull this chapter apart this morning. Uh, If you were here last week as we worked through Nahum chapter 1, you'll remember that we saw that God has uh, remembered his people. He's not forgotten them. He's not going to leave them alone, suppressed uh, by Assyria. He's not only remembered them, but he's told them and, and shown them again he's powerful and he's coming to do something about their situation. He's going to come, he's going to rescue them. And in Nahum chapter 2, he, he explains what that's going to look like. He foretells what's going to happen. Uh, look again at, at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. Uh, God's saying something's coming to you, Nineveh. Uh, Someone's coming. It's an attacker. Literally the word is scatterer. Um, Assyria as a nation used to invade other countries and take their people and, and scatter them across the face of the earth, deport them. Well, now God's saying the same is coming to you. Someone's coming who is going to scatter you. Notice we're not told who that is. Um, It's deliberately ambiguous here. Uh, Historically, when we look back, we know Babylon is the one who defeated Nineveh, but here we're kind of kept in the dark. And the implication is, even if God might not be the one to, to physically attack, at least God is the one who is behind all of this. God is speaking, the implication, God is acting here. Nineveh, watch out, get ready, Battle is ahead. Your destruction is imminent because God is coming. God is behind this. And look what he's doing. Look at chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord will restore the splendour of Jacob like the splendour of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. God is promising to do something good for his people, something great for his people here. He is promising to restore. Um, It seems weird the the destroyers have laid them waste, ruined their vines. Uh, Vines is a picture, it also means branches. What's being described there is the people, the the branches of Israel, the branches of their family tree. They've been laid waste, their people have been slaughtered and killed, their their numbers have been reduced. And God's saying, that's all going to turn around. You're few now but I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to increase you as a nation. You're going to be big and great again. In fact, God's promising not only just to make them what they were, God's actually promising a huge reversal here, uh, a greater reversal, a greater restoration to even splendour or more, more literally majesty. See, for years, for hundreds of years, God's people had been in decline. Um, hundreds of years before, they had their, their most famous kings, David and then Solomon. Uh, and for, for that time the nation was glorious, it reached its peak. Uh, the, the twelve tribes were all united, no one could stand before them. Every time they went to battle they won. Their territory was expanding, the, the riches uh, and wealth were flowing in and nations would travel to them to, to just marvel at how great they were. 
But then the tribes split. Uh, Ten went north and became Israel. Two went south and became Judah. They fought against each other. Their lands shrunk. Uh, They were plundered. Their, Their enemies stood against them and defeated them. The nations came to them not to marvel but to dominate. And now all that remains is Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, a little bit of territory. But even that is firmly under the Assyrian thumb. And God's coming and saying, I'm going to restore you. I'm not just going to make you free, in fact. I'm going to make you better. I'm going to make you more glorious. And see, the promise here is not just for Judah, is it? Judah's not even mentioned. He says, uh, I'm going to restore Jacob. I'm going to restore Israel. He's saying, the whole of the nation, everything you are meant to be, I'm going to make you that again far better than you were before. I'm going to gather and restore and renovate you. It's going to be glorious. You're going to be majestic again. God's promised. How's that going to happen? Well, it's going to happen by God's power, isn't it? Do you know what he doesn't say there in verse 2? He doesn't say, I'm going to restore you, so gather your troops, we're off to Assyria, you're going to defeat them. Uh, He doesn't say, I'm going to restore you so make the right alliances and together you'll be powerful enough to beat your oppressor. He doesn't say make investments, do this or do that. He actually says do nothing. He simply says, I'm going to do it. I'm coming. The promise is mine and the power to do it is mine as well. You can't help in this. Uh, It's like working with children, young children. Um, you know, there's some things they can do, there's some things they can help with and there's some things they can't. Uh, the kids, our kids help with the gardening, our kids help with washing the car or help with tidying, but there's just some things they can't help with, isn't there? You know, they can't help with the cooking, they can't be trusted with knives, let alone something hot, that's a disaster. Uh, they can't help when it comes to working in the boat or working on the car. That's just, it's just not going to work, is it? It's going to be a disaster. And the same thing is is being told to God's people here. You can't help in this. You you have no part to play. I have to do all of this for you. He's saying, sit down, listen, watch and wait. I'm going to act. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make it happen. There is a good promise and God will do it. But the thing is, uh, if, you, if you know your Bible history, if, you, if you've read ahead in the story, you might know that that doesn't actually turn out, does it? It doesn't actually work quite as you would expect. True, things get better for a while. Assyria is are taken off the scene and things improve. But then Judah itself is defeated. Judah's deported. Judah is utterly destroyed. And the question hangs in, well, what about this promise? God said, I'm going to make you better, not just better, but but, but far better, glorious. What about the promise? Well, actually, when we read ahead, it continues. It doesn't fade out. God doesn't actually turn around and say, well, actually, I meant this. The promise is repeated. And in fact, not just repeated, it's elaborated, it's expanded, it's made even bigger. If you read the prophets that that are yet to come, Isaiah and and Ezekiel and the others, uh, they say this restoration is still coming. Even though all these terrible things have happened, 
They say the nations are going to flock to you again. You're going to, be, you're going to expand. Your glory is going to fill not just the land, it's going to fill the world. It's going to be far more than you've ever imagined. And still the people wait. And still they look to that day. And still the promises come one after the other, even when we get to the New Testament. The promises change a little. God says the kingdom of God is near, a place of peace, a place of nearness to him, a place of glory and restoration. Uh, The promise becomes life and life, not just ordinary life, but life to the full. The promise becomes far bigger. It's not just to Judah anymore. The promise is to the very ends of the earth. But all the while the same. God doing it. God promising it. God enacting it. Promises for his people, but not by his people. God is the one who's going to bring it about. Here's where Christianity uh, differs, well, one of the places where Christianity differs from all other religions. Uh, Every religion promises much. If you've ever looked into any other, you'll see that. They, They promise all sorts of things. But they all say, do it yourself. It's only the Bible that says, you can't do it yourself. Islam says, follow the commands and Allah will take you to paradise. Uh, Hinduism says, be really good and you might be reincarnated better than you are now. Even Catholicism says, do the rules, do the practices, give to the right places and you'll get to heaven and maybe with less purgatory on the way. Uh, It's not just other religions, our society kind of champions the same thing, doesn't it? We love the self-made man, we love the one who improves their life, who gets themselves together. Um, even you know, the TV show this time last year celebrates it. Look, people make themselves better. Isn't that good? Well, the Bible says I, uh, God alone can make it stick. He makes the best promises and he makes the best promises possible. He says, trust me to do it for you. And as we read on, we see how he does that. Uh, What does God do? Well, we get this picture, this incredibly graphic, this incredibly vivid picture of the fall of Nineveh uh, prophesied or or, or predicted. Look with me at verses 3 to 10. The shields of his soldiers are red, the warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes. On the day that they are made ready, the spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares, They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open. The palace collapses. It's decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless. The wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble. Every face grows pale. The, the, the fall of Nineveh is just laid out before us then. The, the armies appear outside. They're, they're dressed in red. They're ready for battle. Uh, their chariots are, are arrayed against the city. There's a forest of spears standing before the walls. Uh, its defenders are dismayed that the chariots, which is like the, the best bit of military technology of the day, uh, they, they dart everywhere. You know, escape is cut off. There's no hope for this city. 
In their eagerness, the attackers trip over themselves to get to the wall and to get inside. They, they throw up their protection and the city falls. Uh, its gates are opened, its palaces are plundered, its people are exiled and carried away. Uh, Nineveh is a, a city that had rivers around it and running through it. It was well irrigated uh, and now it's compared to a dam. A dam that's burst and it just flows out and dries up and is gone. Its people and resources are taken. No one can stop it. And all the treasure that it's gathered in all its conquest of the known world is stripped away. And all its strength and power is gone. Uh, the start of verse 10 puts it very poetically. There's three words. Um, in the Hebrew they rhyme. I won't give you the original because you can't remember it. I can't say it. But essentially if we translate it literally it's like destroyed, deserted, desolate. That's the final verdict for this great city. This was the world power. At the time when Nahum writes, it is invincible to the eye. And God's saying, it's going to be gone. Utterly gone. The predator will become the prey. Look at verse 11 and 12. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. Now, so long, for such a long time, Assyria rode forth on conquest like lions and, and everything fell before them, were terrified when they came. Uh, they grew fat on, on the captives and the treasures they brought back. They fed themselves up and grew stronger. And now it's all no more. Verse 13. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. Now, Historically speaking, we know that um, within about 20, 30 years of Nahum writing this, uh, this happened. Babylon attacked Nineveh defeated it entirely. But already God is saying, it was me. I was behind this. I am the one who stood against you and even though I worked through Babylon, it was me who fought on your behalf, O Judah. God promises for his people and God fights for his people. He casts down their enemy, freeing them so that his promise to them can be fulfilled. And so, the great oppressor's gone. Nineveh's cast down. God's people are free. Full stop. Happily ever after. Or not. Because as we see, Judah, God's people, reject him again. And the very people that, that God uses to free them from Assyria, the nation of Babylon, he then uses to punish them. And they are the ones defeated and destroyed and desolate. But as we saw, God's promises still continued. In fact, God's promises were repeated and expanded and grew bigger and better and more beautiful and clearer. But what also didn't change was the means of making it happen. God continues to say, I'm going to come. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to overcome those who stand against you. I'm going to free you 
so these promises will be fulfilled. Just as God fights here, God fights again for his people. Only the next time he does it, the the battle is very strange. There's no glittering armies, there's no flashing chariots. There's instead a humble child born in a grubby stable. There's no long siege, no mighty attack, but instead a criminal's death on an instrument of torture. And yet there God says, I fight for you. And in that, what's he telling us? He's telling us that we still need an enemy beaten, but one that's very different than Nineveh. Because our enemy is not physical like them. The obstacle to the promises is not physical like it was in this day. Uh, It's spiritual. An enemy we could never have fought on our own. An enemy we could never have overcome ourselves. Uh, it's like school. I don't know if you ever had this at school. You know, when you're in primary school, the older kids come in and they, they, um, they take your footy or they take your lunch or something. And what can you do when you're in primary school? You can't have a go at a high school kid. They're too strong. You can't possibly get your ball off them. So what do you do? You go to the next one above them, don't you? You go to the teacher. Miss or mister, he's taken my ball. Can you, can you get it back? It's never a popular move, but it works, doesn't it? Uh, you, you can't do it. You need to go to a higher authority. You need someone else to stand in for you. And Jesus, uh, what we're being told here is we need the same. We can't fight this enemy. We can't overcome them on our own. We need to go to someone who can. And we have someone who can. Because Jesus can and Jesus had, has. Uh, he tells us he came and he tied up the strong man in order that his house could be plundered. And that's what we see for us. Here's how Hebrews 2 puts it. By his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, on the cross, Jesus fought on our behalf. He fought in our place. He fought for us. And his resurrection is proof that he won, that his victory is sure that the devil's power and sin and death is destroyed and that thereby we are freed. And it's grace, it is his free gift that he fought in our place so that God's wonderful promise, also by grace, is not only possible but is made ours. Here's how Colossians 1 put it. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Like Judah, we had given ourselves over to to powers, willingly, just like them. And like he did then, God shows grace. He rescues, he frees, and in doing so he restores and fulfils his promises to us. He overthrows our enemy for us and frees us forever. So that for all who trust in him, Jesus wins something that is truly amazing. Because in his victory, not only is sin's power over us broken, but sin's power in us as well. And so we are changed in this. We are made new. In him, we're no longer who we used to be. We're freed, we are redeemed, we are restored. Now that means if you are here this morning looking for hope, looking 
to change, looking for a difference, looking to be free. This beautiful promise is for you. Because Jesus has won. And if you trust him, then what he has won is for you. It is freely offered. All you have to do is trust him. And this hope, this promise, this freedom, this restoration is yours. And sin's power over and sin's power in you will be broken forever. And you'll be forgiven. All of that is yours, simply if you trust him. And if you have trusted him, whether recently, whether years ago, then know that that power for you is still broken. Know that even now he's still changing you, he's still restoring you, he's still making you as you are meant to be, like him, glorious. That's a slow process, Uh, it's a hard process, but it is one that is ongoing and it is one that it will be perfected when he comes and when all of these promises will be yours in their entirety. It will be glory, it will be restoration, it will be nearness to God and it will all be yours forever. You don't have to win the battle because Jesus already has on your behalf. Your enemy is beaten, he thrashes around in in his final throes, he can still hurt, he still roars, his influence is still around but he is beaten, he is defeated. You don't have to beat him again. You simply have to trust and stand firm and resist in what Jesus has done, knowing that this promise is yours. Because we have a God who not only promises, but who acts. Who not only makes incredible claims, but does incredible things in order to make them happen. And he's offered it all to you. Jesus fought for you a fight you could never win on your own. He has cast down the enemy you could never have beaten. He has freed you from your oppressor in order to restore you to a glory you can't even begin to picture. God has acted and you are restored. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you that not only have you promised what we wanted, but uh, what we also so desperately needed. And not only have you promised, but you have acted to fulfil and to make it possible. Father, you didn't tell us to go and get it for ourselves, uh, to make it happen in our own strength. Instead, you fought for it on our behalf through Jesus in his death on the cross. Father, we praise you that by your grace that promise of restoration and life forever is ours. Father, help us to trust you, help us to stand firm in what he has done for us, knowing that the war is won, knowing that our enemy is beaten. And so help us not to fear, but to look to him in faith and be confident and glad, knowing that your promises are ours, that restoration is is ours in Jesus and glory is ours forever in him. In his name we pray. Amen.